when I was talking last week about <clears throat> living uh, in Adventist institutional towns, I thought back to when we moved uh, to Angwin to go to college. And uh, you may not know it or not, and all the way back in the 90s, <laughs> you may not know it because uh, I've been your pastor and I am a pastor, but you know, we get tested when we say that we wanna be a pastor. The first thing that we go through is a battery of psychological tests. Not because just wanting to be a pastor means that we're crazy, uh, but what they're looking for is they look for, unfortunately, in our uh, world, um, they're looking to weed out what we would consider sociopaths, people that would take this position and take advantage of it. So I remember those tests, five, six, seven hours, uh, two or three components of it. And <clears throat> I remember our department chair, Dr. Winslow, explaining to us, this is the reason why we put you through these and explaining about the sociopaths and then mentioning that there was a recent graduate within the past 10 years before then who uh, was caught committing arson. In order to pay for the church's new building project, he tried to burn down the old church and to pay for it with, to pay for the new one with the selection, the, uh, the uh, collection of insurance. And I just kind of went, wow. You know, that's, it, I, not knowing much, not having been in the church long, that sounded like way, way, way out there. But uh, sure enough, later that week, I was reading, um, we, being in the Bay Area, we were reading, reading the San Francisco Chronicle, and every Sunday they had a, a, a news magazine that was in there. And sure enough, there was a, an article in there that was called Adventist or Arsonist. And it told the story of this pastor that had done this. And of course, when it happened and, and the sarcastic tone of, of the reporter of the story, I certainly clucked my tongue and thanked the Lord that that wasn't me. Of course that wasn't me. And I was sharing this when I got to a, a, a later church. I shared this story uh, to talk about uh, contempt for others. And when I did, there were two members that had just joined our church who actually were members of that church. And they sat with me during a potluck and told me of the troubled, very troubled young man that this pastor was and the trouble that he had. And so years later after hearing the story, my contempt for him began to soften because I began to realize some things. Contempt for others. Jesus told a parable, which is, how I'll conclude, because this is, I don't, I'm not sure, uh, again, I, I pointed out uh, to you that we've been in the parables that Luke reported, and I'm not 100% sure why Luke's parables are so different, except that one of them may be that he truly was from the outside. Luke was Greek by birth. He came from, he, he probably may have been one of the very first Gentiles converted into this new way, if you will. So he truly knew what it felt to be on the outside. So when he heard, when he came across these parables and what Jesus said about things like this, contempt for others, and I'm wondering if he uh, reflected that and he got uh, glommed onto that because I'm not sure that all of us know what it feels like to be on the outside. He certainly did. So this last parable that we'll conclude with is told to a particular group of people. It's told to anybody who would hold someone else in contempt. He told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were what? That they were righteous and regarded others with contempt. This whole parable is for them. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee the other a tax collector. Pharisee, I wanna share you a little history and then update you a little bit because uh, about a month ago, I went through um, a, a just kind of an interlude in this series to talk about this, but uh, I, wanna, I wanna just come across to you. I'm not sure that we have ever gained a full knowledge of who the Pharisees really were. Um, and I believe that we can't get an accurate portrayal of what we're told about the Pharisees in the New Testament. You get me? We don't know half, not even, we don't know a fraction of what we could know about the Pharisees 
based on what is told to us about them in the New Testament. The word Pharisee actually means separated one. The Encyclopedia Judaica says that no complete estimate of the character of the Pharisees can be attained from the New Testament which takes a polemical view toward them. In other words, the New Testament has a very narrow view and not narrow as that the New Testament looks down upon them. The New Testament isn't in the business, if you will, to give us a complete history of who the Pharisees were. These are a particular number of Pharisees that Jesus had interaction with and that everyone did. In fact, the encyclopedia article goes on to say that it's mistakenly held that the New Testament references to them as hypocrites or offspring of vipers are applicable to the entire group. When we hear the word Pharisee, that's what we hear. Every Pharisee was self-righteous. Every Pharisee was a brood of viper. And it simply was not true. Absolutely not. The leaders of the Pharisees themselves were very well aware of the insincere among their members. And they came to describe them as sore spots and plagues of our group. I'm sure we can understand this, can't we? We're all members of a church. Does a church have particular sore spots? Can the church be painted by running into just one of the members? But unfortunately, over 2,000 years, that's what the church has done with these men. We all of a sudden have painted them all with one brush, as humans tend to do. They weren't just good men. They were the best of men. They were highly respected, extremely well thought of. Their contribution to Israeli society was beyond what you can imagine. Would the church be better off? Would all of us be better off if we woke up each day the way the Pharisee did and come to God and ask that one question, what do I do today to live out my inheritance of eternal life? Luke 10, Matthew 19. At first they were, I did that again. At first they were lovers of scripture. They were intent on preserving the relevant meaning of scripture throughout time. They were also lovers and completely dedicated to the law of God, completely. The primary concern of the Pharisee was to make Torah the supreme guide of life in thought, word, and deed. By study of its contents, obedience to its precepts, and as the root of it all, conscious service of God who had given us Torah. Are they starting to sound familiar to us? You protected it by surrounding it with precautionary rules. The way they looked at it is the violation of the commandment is this step right here. If I step off this, I have violated the commandment. They thought if we could just build a fence around it, we would never even get to it. By the way, we've been doing it since we were created. God said, don't eat of the fruit. Eve said, don't even touch it. Creating a fence, creating a hedge. If I don't get near there, then I will not violate it. Yeah, it became burdensome. 1,521 oral rules for Sabbath observance alone. They had a missionary zeal. They reached out to Jews and to non-Jews with this message of God being ultimately to be worshiped, to be praised, and to be served. And finally, they were Adventists. They looked with intense desire to the coming of the Messiah and the ushering in of the Messianic kingdom. Some actually taught that if the law were kept perfectly for one day, Messiah would come. There were 6,000 of them in Jesus' day. Again, an elite core of highly dedicated men that formed right after the Babylonian captivity. 
Because they looked back at the captivity and they said, you know what? Every prophet that has come down the pike has told us that we were hauled into captivity for not being faithful to the law, not taking care of the poor, not taking care of the widows. So we're going to make sure that that never happens again. And that's what they dedicated their entire lives to. They first appear in the second century BCE during the Maccabean Rebellion as an organized group. And they immediately begin to adopt a lifestyle and theology that would preserve this faithfulness to make sure that they never, ever got hauled into captivity again. Is there anything wrong with that? Absolutely nothing wrong with that. Their motivations are praiseworthy in every way. And I will say this, we would have liked them, wouldn't we? Why? Because they're a lot like us. Change that to Adventist and that's us right there, isn't it? They're a lot like us. So just to note this, that when Jesus speaks, when the New Testament authors speak about these men, they are not denigrating the entire group unless they take all of that positive love for God, scripture, and mission, and they do that what every believer is susceptible to do. And that is begin to regard themselves as righteous and do what? Hold others in what? In contempt. So what I'm trying to get across to you is that very few Pharisees did this. Unfortunately, as it's been proven for the past 2,000 years, The men and women that seem to have trouble with this, they're the ones that get all of the press. They're the ones that everybody knows about. They're the loudest. They're the noisiest. They have to be. There's nothing wrong with being righteous unless your righteous regards others with contempt. In other words, if your righteousness requires as a measurement of that righteousness to be compared to others, then you are self-righteous. He's not speaking to every Pharisee. He's speaking to self-righteous Pharisees. In other words, Pharisee does not equal self-righteous. You with me? Just like Pharisee does not equal Jewish, because what happened over the years is pretty soon the church just began to refer to all Jews as Pharisees and all Pharisees as self-righteous. And that led to a specific type of racism that is known as anti-Semitism, and that's why I wanted to talk to you about, like, about that three weeks ago when I brought it up. So I believe the gospel writers, Luke included, they knew this. So when they're pointing out the sore spots, they can use the word Pharisee because they recognize the sore spots. I don't believe that Luke believed that every Pharisee was self-righteous. I don't believe that Luke believed that Jesus believed that every Pharisee was self-righteous. Are you getting me here? Do you understand? I'm to the point to where I don't even like using the word Pharisee when I'm talking about this because of what the church had done with the name Pharisee. So you might find me not even using it anymore. I don't use it in prayer meeting anymore. I just say self-righteous. A self-righteous man and a tax collector came to pray. The other reason why I think that nobody wants to let go of this and, 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 and would rather believe that every Pharisee was self-righteous because then I can cover up my own self-righteousness. I can remain self-righteous and just not call me a Pharisee. but all of us are guilty of it. And the way Jesus says, the way that we can tell whether or not we're self-righteous is whether we hold anyone else in contempt. Isn't that what he said? So I'm just saying, the danger of that stereotype took less than 1,939 years before Pharisees and Jews got the name and applied to everything Jewish 
And the church then begins contributing to the persecution of Jews that began 1,800 years ago. So keep this in mind, okay? Can we keep it in mind whenever we talk about Pharisees? Not just today, but even later when you're reading and come across it. It's these sore spots. It's the self-righteous. Not the self, not so much the Pharisee, but the self-righteous Pharisee. Like I said, there were 6,000. The party was up to 6,000 in Jesus' day. You think all 6,000 of them were there? All 6,000 of them were challenging Jesus every day? Whenever the, whenever the scripture says uh, Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes, and chief priests, you think all 6,000 Pharisees are standing there? Fighting him, arguing with him about the law? No. It's the sore spots, right? So like I said, if we can stereotype self-righteousness as being a Pharisee, then we can deflect it away from our own. I could be self-righteous, I'm just not a Pharisee. When actually we've already proven that we would have liked these guys. And chances are, there's quite a few men that would be a Pharisee if we lived back then. So keep that in mind when Jesus says things like this. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never what? You'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. That's why he wrote this parable. Unless your righteousness exceeds that, unless your righteousness goes beyond self, Okay, beyond self-righteousness, then you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. I'll change it to our study today. You'll never ever hear this parable. You won't hear it for what it is supposed to be teaching us. See, righteousness then has to exceed self in definition. All things self. How can someone so in love with the things of God be so lost? Ask Saul, who became Paul. Saul figured it out and had to change his name. He said, I've become born again. I've become a completely different person. So don't call me Saul anymore. Call me Paul. And by the way, Paul never blamed his Phariseeism on what happened to him. He blamed his self-righteousness. Circumcised on the eighth day, born of the tribe of Benjamin, a Pharisee of Pharisees, he put himself above Phariseeism. As unto the law, perfect is the way he described himself. Then later tells the Corinthians, you know what? I'm the least of the apostles and the chief of sinners because I persecuted those of the way. Somebody who was perfect in his walk with God yet could uh, persecute, could kidnap, torture, and even murder men, women, and children, all because they worship this country bumpkin rabbi from Galilee, but still considered himself what? Perfect. And held as anyone else in contempt. He's not blaming his Phariseeism. He's blaming himself. His self-righteousness. That's what leads to contempt with others. See, if I fall short every day, the law holds a standard for me. What does the law say you need to do every day? What do you need to be every day, according to the law? You need to be perfect. The law holds you to that standard every day. And if you violate just a little bit of it, you violated all of it, that means you go to bed every night a failure. And the law can do nothing about that. The law says, I'm sorry, but you blew it again today. You're not perfect. I will see you tomorrow. And if I'm getting nothing but failure, nothing but condemnation from my walk, I either walk away from the church and the God that I claim to worship, or more likely, I'll stay with the church, but what I will do then is that I will then begin to look at others. And as long as I can find somebody who is not as righteous as I am, then I can begin to feel good about myself. Self-righteousness always leads to contempt for others. I may not be perfect, Lord, but when you compare me to Mike, 
whoo, I need something to feel good. So I take my fellow sinners and I stand on their necks and their backs in order to feel good about myself and my worship of God. So party number one, a self-righteous man went to the temple to pray. Who else goes to the temple to pray? The tax collector. What we remember about the tax collector is this, that Rome ran their empire by adopting it and making it their own. They did not go in and wipe the whole thing out and then rebuild it as Roman. They walked in, they co-opted everything within it. Literature, architecture, laws, practices, religions. They just co-opted all of it. They only demanded two things for you, that you not rebel against the emperor and that you pay your taxes. As long as you did those two things, Rome was your friend. So in exchange for living in peace, that was all that they asked for. So when it came to collecting those taxes, they selected native citizens to do it. It's a brilliant plan. And it especially worked in Israel. Because if you got them to do it, they would not rebel against their own. They would see a fellow Jew and they would give them a level of respect. If a Jew joined the Roman army, they would not fight against him. I don't know if you guys remember the the siege at Masada. In 70 AD, when they destroyed the temple, a group of of commandos, a a special kind of SEAL team, a ranger team, if you will, of of Israeli soldiers made their way out to Herod's fortress at Masada, and they they stayed up there. And they were just waiting. And the army eventually goes out, and they surround it, and they're going to wait him out. Well, every time that the army came up, then, then they would destroy them from, from above. All of, those, all of those things that you see, you know, oil and spears and everything else. But what happened was, was that they took publican soldiers. They took Jewish Roman soldiers to send them up. And when they did, their brothers on top of the mountain couldn't fire upon them. It's a brilliant plan. So a publican, to be labeled a publican means that you're on the side of the republic now. So it means that it would actually be a, a, a betrayer of your people. They betrayed their own. They betrayed their God. They betrayed everything about them. If you were honest, and apparently some of them weren't honest, then they could actually fleece. Rome would give them permission. As long as you collect what we're telling you to collect, we don't care what you collect after that. So they got a reputation of fleecing their own. The Romans loved it. They got along fine. And there were always a group of, of, of Israelis, there were always a group of Hebrews that were looking forward to it. I, I, I think of, I think of uh, Jacob's blessing on his sons and, and how the tribes then come up from that and they kind of adopt uh, this blessing. But you remember when he came to bless his firstborn, Jacob wasn't real happy with his firstborn. He looked at Reuben and he says, ah, oh, Reuben, Unstable as water, you shall never excel. Imagine your dad telling you that. That's that's dad's final blessing upon you. Unstable as water, you shall never excel. Well, if any Reubenite grows up with that burden upon them, they'd be primed to join the Roman army, wouldn't they? I'm going to find somewhere where I'm going to excel. Being a publican was perfect for Reuben's. So it's these two guys, the tax collector and the self-righteous man, all show up at the same time, both show up for the temple to pray. Let's look at, look at as uh, their worship, if you will. The Pharisee, the self-righteous man, stood and was praying thus to what? To himself. He's not even praying to God. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. That I'm not like that tax collector over there. Swindlers. Notice what he says first. He's a tax collector. He swindles us out of our money. Unjust, adulterers, or even like this one. Like this tax collector. In some, uh, always, I, I think I've memorized it in another version. I'm not a thief. I'm not a rogue. I'm not an adulterer. 
I'm not even like that tax collector over there. I fast how many times a week? Law doesn't even tell you you have to fast. He does it twice. And I pay what? I pay my tithe. Darn it. That's what I do. The reason that Luke says, the reason that Jesus says that he's not even praying to God is because all he's doing is that he's reading a catalog of his own virtues. Not only is he not like others, he can list his merits. Five times he uses I in relation to his virtues. Five times he relates self to his virtues. He's testifying before God. He's not praying to God. He's making sure God knows that he measures up. Why do this? Why have a relationship with God like this? Well, number one, I see perfectly what your picture of God is, is that God expects this, right? God told his people, you heard what I said, do it. That's all they know. But the absolute positive, the, the, the fundamental problem, if you will, of the Pharisaic or self-righteous theology is that they have an inadequate view of sin and the effect on the human ability. There was a, a view of sin. Their view of sin was that it was an act rather than a condition of the heart and the mind. Are you with me? They see sin as a broken commandment. Or better yet, they see sin as a series of broken commandments. When actually sin is a problem where? It's a problem in the heart. It's a problem of nature. But the dominant Pharisaic tradition saw no moral difference between unfallen man and fallen man. They believe that fallen humanity has the same ability to live a righteous life as Adam did before the fall. If you're sinning, just quit. They taught that the will to do good was not enfeebled at all by the fall. It doesn't bear out, does it? It doesn't bear out theologically. It doesn't bear out in life. How many here have tried to quit sinning? No one. Okay. We got one person who tried to quit sinning. How have you done? (laughs) How many tried to quit sinning this morning? Did you make it? I didn't make it in the commute. Two people going slower than me. And I held them in contempt. I heard a comedian once say, did you ever notice that anybody going faster than you is crazy and anybody going slower than you is an idiot? <laughs> now it is true that they taught the, uh, the yeser hadra or the evil impulse, but they also taught that Adam was born with that impulse too. They taught that this impulse to evil can be subdued and brought into service to God and humanely humanly controlled through studying and meditation upon the law and applying it to daily living. In other words, I gotta put self in gear. So what the Pharisee did with sin is what we would all do with sin. They broke down the problem into little manageable bite-sized pieces and they went to work on it. Obvious sin in my life, I'm gonna put everything on hold and I'm gonna get over this one right here. And when I get over that one, well, I'll be perfect for just a second until the next one shows up. Atomizing sin. So if it's a series of acts, then the problem with this theology is, is that you have to look at righteousness the same way. Righteousness now becomes a series of good acts, little ones, that end up balancing out the scale. I have to balance out the scale. I've committed this many sins, so I need to do this many good deeds. Because again, the law doesn't allow you to do anything else but play this game. 
And so why does it translate into this resentment that we see here from this righteous man to this tax collector? It's because he has to quantify his righteousness in the same way. The only way that I can look better than that guy is that I need to quantify my righteousness by quantifying my sin. And if I'm less sinful than he is, then I've got the right to tell God I am righteous. And so he foregoes any relationship with God. He doesn't pray to him anymore. He talks at him. He makes sure that God knows. Because if you're going to come at me today, God, with my imperfection, then what I'm going to do is I'm going to point out that tax collector and say, you better leave me alone if you're going to leave him alone. Contempt. See, and if that's all I feel about other people, is that I need them to be lesser than me so that I can look good before God, then guess what? I'm never gonna care about them at all. I don't care about them beyond their sin. So when Jesus says, go and take care of your neighbor, even last week, I'm absolutely sure last week that one of Lazarus' problems is that he looked down upon Lazarus because Lazarus was poor, which means God didn't like him, which means he was a bigger sinner than me because I had food and he didn't. I chop up sin into little manageable bite-sized chunks and I do it by chopping up righteousness into little manageable bite-sized chunks. And I just keep going. But like I said, in order to quantify my righteousness, I need somebody to compare myself to do. So I will always seek somebody out to compare myself to do uh, uh, with them. Rather than look to help them, rather than look to nurture them, rather than to look to love them as God has loved me, that's all I want them for, is to stand on their backs in order to look good before God. I know it's a horrible life to live. This is the most unsavory thing about the self-righteous character. Standing on the back of a hurting sinner, ultimately hurting them more. The tax collector is just his stepping stone that day. It's just his step stool to stand up and look taller before God. Because a self-righteous person, they only care about what it looks like. As long as it looks good, that's all they're in it for. Ellen White said, the evil that shuts out the self-righteous from the communion with God is proving the ruin of thousands today. There's nothing so offensive to God or so dangerous to the human soul as pride and self-sufficiency. Of all sins, it is the most hopeless, the most incurable. Christ Object Lessons, page 154. The most abominable thing to God, though, is how these people treat others. How we do in our self-righteous state, the most horrible thing is, is not our relationship with God, it's that our relationship with God, uh, we think that it allows us to treat somebody else with contempt. So that we're actually not serving God, but believing that we're serving him. Paul said, I was torturing people and thinking that I was actually serving God. She says in the same volume, on page 151, whoever trusts in himself that he is righteous will despise others. As the self-righteous Pharisee judges himself by other men, so he judges other men by himself. His righteousness is estimated by theirs. And the worse they are, the more righteous by contrast he appears. His self-righteousness leads to accusing Other men he condemns as transgressors of God's law. Thus, he is making manifest the very spirit of Satan, the accuser of the brethren. Such are the fruits of the sin and goodness. And the worst sin that can be committed, the good sin. One of the first outward symptoms of this most of all spiritual diseases is the development of a critical spirit. Because once it starts, once it grows, how easy is it to get rid of? 
Beyond this, then, of course, is the tendency to multiply rules and laws in all sincerity to try to protect God's law, to believe that a slippery slope leads to indiscretion. The problem is that it has an opposite effect because the, the, the indiscretion, being afraid of the slippery slope, is just one more thing that I could use against somebody who constantly seems to be slipping down that slope. I've been able to avoid it, why can't you? Jesus reminds these self-religious leaders that their supreme love of the letter was not serving them well when he noted that the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. He heals on the Sabbath. They are so absolutely apoplectic that he would do work on the Sabbath that they have completely, absolutely forgotten that he healed a person. And Jesus said, you know what? You should be rejoicing. You guys will circumcise a baby on the Sabbath day, but here I heal a whole person and you're condemning me. And healing on the Sabbath is the thing that led to the hatred of him and eventually leads to the cross. The self-righteous role in the crucifixion that represents the apex of spiritual confusion. In their desire to protect the law, they kill the Messiah who gave it. They kill the Messiah who was the law. And actually, I must quit saying they, we. It happens when we confuse moral goodness and orthodoxy with religion. Saul of Tarsus, according to William Coleman, was a perfect example when he says that he had entered that severe circle of those who would murder because they loved. So, three quarters of the way in. Whew. Aren't you glad that we Christians don't have any of these problems? Did that theology invade Christianity? That theology of sin? Of course it did, didn't it? Always looking to balance the scales. Didn't invade the remnant church, though. We were good, right? Never happened to us, unfortunately. It did, didn't it? Bringing about the kingdom of God through this atomized view of sin and righteousness is alive and well. I'll share this with you real quick, just to get through it real quick. Adventists... Adventism is the most prominent theologian of the 30s and the 40s, probably had more influence uh, over Adventism in the 20th century than anybody else. He took exactly the same view of sin as the Pharisees did, exactly the same view. M.L. Andreessen wrote that sanctification begins at conversion and continues through the life. Is that true? Sanctification is the work of what? It's the work of a lifetime. That's a true thing to say, but he says this, Every victory hastens the process. There are few Christians who have not gained the victory over some sin that formerly overcame them. In other words, we have been given victory over some sins. How many here have had a couple of sins that you've had victory over? How many here have had limited victory over sin? We all have, haven't we? Here's what he says about it though. Say someone who was formerly enslaved by a sinful habit and it ceases to be a temptation for him. He says right now, that moment, you are sanctified. You're victorious over one besetment. So he's to become victorious over every besetment. In other words, you're perfect for a moment and now get to work on the next one. When the work is completed, when he's gained victory over pride, ambition, love of the world, over evil, he's ready for translation. How about that? Get good enough at it and you don't even need Christ's atonement anymore. Just be perfect and you can be translated. He's been tried on all points. The evil has come to him and found nothing. Satan has no more temptations for him. He's overcome them all. He stands without fault before the throne of God. Christ places his seal upon him. Jesus taught that he gave us his seal at the cross. The remnant church says, hold on a second. Let's hold off. 
One day there'll be a perfect generation that will do this. That's where final generation theology comes from. Whole schools of Adventist thought is based on this theology. And before we even got to the 20th century, Ellen White said that the spirit of Phariseeism is the spirit of human nature and is proving the ruin of thousands today. Good people who don't know they're good, that's a human, uh, good people who do not know they are not good, that is a human-centered religion. That is self-righteousness. Phariseeism continues to exist because it's a state of mind. It's not a historic group, or it's not just a few members of a historic group. It's what they call, the Bible calls a natural man. We can feel good about ourselves because of a confusion between upright living and true righteousness. What does the prophet call righteousness that we've drummed up ourselves? As filthy what? As filthy rags. So I go back to Coleman, William Coleman, when he says, the Pharisees are our not too distant cousins. They've done very little that we have not worked hard to match in action or spirit. We've used them as whipping posts when in fact they make better mirrors. They are, are us and we are them. And the saddest thing about the Pharisee is that despite his goodness, he is spiritually and totally lost. His prayer is to himself, and he has no sense of his lost state. That's Jesus' final word for those who consider themselves righteous and hold others in contempt. But praise God, there's another guy standing there in the temple. The tax collector, standing far off, wouldn't even look up to heaven but was beating his breast and saying, God, be merciful to me, what? A sinner. First of all, he, looks, he can't even look up to heaven. He compares himself to no one else but who? Compares himself to God, and when he does, it immediately brings his face down, right? I'm not gonna compare myself to God. Stands far off, asks for mercy. He's got nowhere else to go. See, I'd say one Sabbath, Reuben stumbled into the synagogue, probably hungover from partying the night before. He's been running with a rough crowd all his life. He's, he's, he, he's been partying with the Romans. He's been doing all of this. And every now and then, he'd check in at the synagogue looking for a little comfort from his childhood. He heard the rabbi read again from Genesis 49, that blessing upon his father, Reuben, that has cursed him forever. Just about when he was about to cause a scene, the way that he has caused a scene ever since he was 13, something caught him. He's been thrown out of this synagogue a hundred times before for challenging that prayer to his father, but then he realized something. Who is that speaking? Who is it that's saying that blessing? Jacob, a deceiver, a liar, a birthright thief who'd see his brother cursed just for his own well-being. This is the man who had the privilege of receiving the covenant from God that was promised to his father Isaac, one who saw God face to face in this desperate wrestling match. I will not let you go until you bless me. Me, Jacob, the liar, the the supplanter, the heel. One who was named now the embodiment of all God's people, Yitzrael which means wrestling with God. The covenant that belongs to Jacob belonged to Reuben. Why? Because it's God's covenant to give, not man's to earn. And God gives it to whoever he pleases. And he gave it to Jacob, and he gave it to Reuben, and he gives it to every sinner that comes after him. Jesus says, after that prayer, he said, I tell you, this man went down to his home justified. Remember that Greek right there? Made right, completely right before God and before others. He is righteous, justified. Not fake righteousness, not given power to go out and not sin anymore, but simply right. Right. 
before God. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, but all who humble themselves will be exalted. Not one act or deed or obedience required. He didn't ask for anything. Jesus, it was just, God just gave it to him. A self-righteous person does not ask for his righteousness because he does not feel he needs it. This tax collector realized he needed it, asked for it, and it was given to him. Self-righteous person doesn't need what God has because their hands are full of filthy rags. There's not even any room. I can't put anything in your hand, Greg. It's full of filthy rags. Why don't you get rid of that? See, but to do that, I would have to admit that I'm exactly like that tax collector over there. And my self-righteousness isn't gonna let me do that. I feel a lot better just standing on his neck. George Knight said in uh, his book, The Pharisee's Guide to Perfect Holiness, he said, to be honest, I personally find it easier to multiply regulations than to truly care for people. The shocking truth is that there is self-righteous within the skin of each of us seeking to impose our spirits on an unsuspecting world and an undeserving church. We're not only tempted to follow these leaders of old in recreating a Mishnah of oral interpretations to impose upon our neighbors, but worse yet, some of us seek to put our own theological straitjacket on God. The self-righteous Pharisee of every generation are busy creating the God of heaven in their own image. Why is final generation theology so important? Why is it that we want to believe that there will be somebody who can be sinlessly perfect? Because if I become sinlessly perfect, then I force God into saving me. I'm perfect, you have to save me now. I finally have my assurance, my perfection. And Jesus says, I'm sorry, you're utterly, absolutely lost. Only those who realize their poverty, who realize their unrighteousness, who are constantly understanding their nature and humble themselves, they're the only ones that can hear the parable. The self-righteous person can't even hear the parable. So remember for those who fancy themselves like the tax collector, if your prayer is, I thank you, O Lord, that I'm not like that tax collector over there, then we know what we have to listen to. We know what we have to do. My problem is I stand on the other side and say, I thank you, Lord, I'm not like that Pharisee over there. And actually my prayer should be, you know what, Lord? I'm exactly like that Pharisee. I'm exactly like that tax collector. Woe is me, I am a sinner. Have mercy. Somebody full of grace will compare themselves to no one. They will not despise. They will not hold in contempt. It happened in class once. It happens to all of us every now and then. It, it, uh, it, it comes up. And uh, what came up was this idea that, uh, that somehow the people that put Christ to death the Romans and, and, and the leadership, the religious leadership and all of them, that they are somehow more culpable and worse off because they did this. And it's, a, and it's this whole horrific theology about, about them calling his, his curse be on us and our children and all of that. And every generation of the church has had to face on how they handle that. And it happened in class one day at, at, at seminary. And, and I understand what my, what my brother was trying to do. He was trying to say, this is the reality. The reality was that this happened. It's not an allegory or anything else. The reality was that the civil power in charge combined with the religious power and they were able to put Jesus to death. The problem is with that is, is that it was written. It was all written. Jesus willingly did that. God willingly did that. It wasn't, it wasn't because Rome was so powerful. It wasn't because uh, the, the religious leadership made such a convincing argument. It didn't have, they, were, they were nearly pawns in this whole thing. 
And what happened was, was that our, uh, my man wanted to defend the actual reality of the crucifixion because there's a lot of people out there that believe that it's just allegory, that it really didn't happen. And it's just a story for us to be able to understand what righteousness and atonement and everything calls for. And he was trying to defend that. And finally, in his exasperation, he said, let's be honest, who killed Jesus? And I'd like to think that it was the Holy Spirit, but what hit me at that moment was I said before the class, I did. You did. We all did. Because self-righteous people need saving. Tax collectors need saving. Self-righteous churchgoers need saving. We all need saving. We just have to admit our condition in which to receive it. So I hope for the past 11 weeks we've learned to listen to the parables with our outside voice. That he's speaking to us. He's only speaking to those outside. He's only speaking to those that are lost. He's not, those who are well need not a physician. The only way I can be saved is that I'm in need of it. And all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It's there for the taking. It's there for the asking. Jesus' outside voice is just asking, will you take it? And when we do, don't be surprised if your contempt for others begins to lift. It's not gonna happen overnight. And probably if you were to poll most of the people here, the, the one thing that waits for us, the one besetting sin that is with us nearly every day is our contempt for others, isn't it? And Paul says, I know, it's a struggle. Stay at it. Ask forgiveness for when we fall short and then get back up off our knees and go back to your house right and let's wake up and do it again. I thank you, O Lord. I'm the tax collector and the self-righteous one. I need your mercy. I need your peace. And he'll give it to us every time we ask. So thank you for this journey. Thank you for uh, listening with me. I hope we opened up our outside ears uh, a little bit uh, for this. So thank you again for your time. Thank you.